if we recognize ourselves as indebted to previous generations for our language, for the technologies that we use, for our very world and our, ourselves, we begin to act in a way that makes room for future generations because we feel grateful. Hello and welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast. This episode began as part of the three-day conference hosted at the Fourth Space entitled Justice Between Generations. It was conceived as more of a workshop than a conversation, and Rebecca Vanderpost, Miu Bao, Joelle Zubay, and Leah Edmonds came together to consider the question of what justice for future generations really means at a time of catastrophic environmental crisis. And they're reflecting critically upon agency, appropriation, and emotion and interrogating the assumed relations between self and the world across generations, and hoping to find that moment where we all could ask, how else might we be? Thanks for listening. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Cayuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather. And Chichague, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. Before diving in, I would like each participant to introduce themselves. Thanks, Joelle. My name's Rebecca Vanderpost, and I'm originally a concert violinist. I've been a performer for some three decades, actually. Um, and I'm now doing my PhD in interdisciplinary humanities here at Concordia. Um, so I, my home base really is Marxian critical theory, um, but I'm also working in critical aesthetics, anarchist, political theory, sensory anthropology, and phenomenology. And at the center of this sort of big swirling kind of domain is a really persistent fascination that I have with the things that happen to us when we lose our self-awareness and become immersed or absorbed in whatever it is that we happen to be doing. And I, I find that these moments that sort of punctuate our more habituated day-to-day -day experiences raise all sorts of questions that fall into two main groups. The first group is really to do with the nature and the scope and the qualities of non-alienated experience and the possibility of non-instrumentalizing relations um, between subject and object or humans and the world that we inhabit. Um, and the second sort of domain um, stands in contrast to this, which is to sort of ask, well, why? Why do we persist in behaviors that we know to be destructive? Why do we persist in behaviors that we know to be leading us headlong into catastrophe? So all of this folds roughly and loosely under the question of really whether there's some dimension of human experience that's actually available to us and that is external nonetheless to western modernity um, and whether we have access how we have access to this experience and whether it in some way might help to point us towards other ways to go about the business of being a human being Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Miyu Bao. I'm an international student doing MA uh, in philosophy at Concordia University. It's my second year here. Uh, I have been interested in uh, free will and more response 
flexibility for five years is a long time. And uh, especially Peter Strauss's reactive attitude theory of moral responsibility. Uh, I'm very interested in how moral uh, sentiments such as uh, resentment, indignation, forgiveness, guilt, and shame, etc., provide foundation of moral responsibility. Uh, guilt and shame are intertwined with each other in some sense, uh, but it's very weird that most philosophers admit that guilt is a reactive attitude, whereas they um, deny that shame is a reactive attitude. Uh, the reason why they hold this view is that they hold a very uh, narrow understanding of uh, reactive attitude in the sense that reactive attitudes are reaction to the violation of uh, moral obligation, which is embodied in our modern Christian and uh, Western cultures. But in fact, our practice of holding uh, more responsibility is far beyond the violation of more obligation. So uh, I want to argue that shame or uh, at least moral shame is a reactive attitude and we should hold a broader understanding of more responsibility. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Uh, so my name is Leah Edmonds. I'm in my second year of the philosophy master's program here at Concordia. Um, so my uh, areas of study are, I mean, continental philosophy broadly, uh, but more specifically phenomenology, existentialism, and post-structuralism. Um, I'm also interested in the history of philosophy, particularly German idealism and Kant. Um, so my current research project pertains to funerary practices, kind of revolving around the questions of why humans across history have performed funeral rites, um, what they do for us phenomenologically, and the more prescriptive question of uh, whether there are better and worse ways of responding to the death of others. Um, so for the sake of this project, uh, I'm looking at two converse ways of interpreting funerary practices. The first interpretation, uh, for which I take Hegel as the main reference, is that humans bury their dead in order to mitigate the loss that is death that is to spiritually immortalize the dead. The second interpretation, which I'm developing in reference primary to Heidegger's later work, um, as well as Derrida and some others, um, is that funerary practices serve as a rem reminder of our mortality and offer a venue to grieve in community the fragility infinitude of human life. Um, my background is in theater, so I am especially interested in gatherings and performance and what can be done uh, when people are gathered together in person. Uh, so while both of these interpretations here, I've, I've uh, sort of delineated two possibilities for uh, funerary practices. I think they're both correct interpretations and they have their place, but I think um, that it's worth considering, perhaps even encouraging an approach to funerary practices that make room for the consideration of death as death and death as an absolute limit. Thank you. Okay, so thank you everyone for uh, your short presentations. Uh, my name is Joël Zubé. I'm in my second year of uh, my PhD in humanities. My main three fields are philosophy, art history, and studio arts. I'm interested in the Western relationship to alterity. I am postulating basically that the dominating mode of relating to alterity is one that is uh, rooted in this cannibalistic mo model uh, of wanting to assimilate and devour the other. 
And I think that's really what is at stake uh, in the uh, intergenerational injustices. It's basically a lack of letting the other live as deciding for them. And uh, I am positing that uh, contemporary art alongside deconstruction, decolonial practices and indigenous methodology can help us uh, detangle uh, the most primary dualistic opposition that is at the root of this cannibalistic model, that is the, the dialectic opposition between inside and outside. But yeah, enough of this. Uh, I think we are interested in today uh, in seeing how all of our research are overlapping and what happens at those intersections. I think we can all agree that the present tense uh, is riddled with crisis, be it environmental, social, or political crisis. So how does those crises influence the possible futures we can think of? Uh, and also what can be said of the temporal nature of those crises? And what happens when the consequences of those crises are promising to stretch out far into futures. Um, this informal discussion seeks to explore those questions uh, under three main themes, uh, temporality, agency, and human positionality. So I'll start off with a question regarding time and especially uh, the past. So how can the way we relate to past uh, generations inform how we might relate with the unborn? So I have sort of two points in this regard. First is that, I think if we can recognize that something is irrevocably lost in the past, in the passing on of generations, we begin to be able to think of our finitude, the finitude of our own lives and of our generation. And I think it's only in realizing this limit uh, that we can make room for the alterity of the future and thereby generate sort of a, um, a respect for the freedom for the alterity of future generations. So we have to be willing to let go of the past in some respects, let go of any wish for our own mortality in order to make way, make room for the future. So that's, that's one point. Um, and then the other point is that I think um, the modern notion of selfhood forgets the ways that every self is indebted to those who came before us. Uh, so we imagine ourselves as sort of created ex nihilo. Um, however, if we recognize ourselves as indebted to previous generations for our language, for the technologies that we use, for our very world and our, ourselves, um, we begin to act in a way that makes room for future generations because we feel grateful. I'm wondering if you could say a few more words about the relationship between finitude and gratitude and inheritance, because on the one hand, there seems to be this sense that the past is past, things are done. But on the other hand, there seems to be something else that is sweeping forwards in what you're saying. And I'm wondering how these two elements relate to each yeah. other. It, it's sort of, it's definitely sort of a, they're contradictory seeming points, but I think that sort of captures what is. Um, so I think that as we are now, we think that we can have it all. And that really begets the kind of consumerism that we all kind of engage in. But if we recognize that the past had something that we can't have, then we realize that we can't have it all and that the future will have something different than we, we can have. But then I'm wondering what that means in terms of how we orient ourselves to the future and 
whether this in some way uh, might undermine the sense of wanting to leave a better world for the future. Does, is there a contradiction so, there? Or? So, yeah, so I think, um, so I, I work with kind of the Heideggerian notion of being towards death. And I think I detect some, some concern that if we are aware of our own finitude, we won't, we won't care what comes after us. And I think that's why we need this piece that says the I that I'm concerned about is not something that I made. It's something that others gave me, mm-hmm. that everyone that came before me, the natural world allowed me to have to take a turn with, uh, to use um, Matthias's language. And that because I was given this opportunity at life, I, I have sort of a duty and obligation to, to pass it on. Mm-hmm. So the notion of being a vessel, I think, is is a good one, a good sort of metaphor for what's going on here is uh, something pours through me because it's been poured into me. I need to pour it on to the future. Yeah. So how can we distinguish uh, our moral responsibility to past generations from our moral responsibilities to future generations? Uh, Leah talked about uh, the openness for the future, like we can uh, admit the possibility. But and the thing is, uh, like um, Galen Strawson proposed a basic argument against free will, like they're actually uh, who we are is determined by uh, who I was before and uh, who I was before is determined by uh, uh, the thing before that. And uh, w- we can trace back everything to our um, boredness, all this stuff, which are far beyond our um, control. So in this sense, it seems like uh, we don't have an open future and uh, uh, we just have uh, one future. And uh, actually, uh, I want to uh, have a dialogue with uh, Leah. I'm kind of uh, um, skeptical about free will and uh, uh, I don't know how Hegel can respond this kind of uh, thought. Yeah, so... So I made the comment before that I think that we should think of ourselves as being indebted to the past, to the earth, um, and that this sort of I is maybe problematic in that it seems to imply sort of a self-creation, a self-birth. And so that sounds like it could be a kind of determinism. But I want to say that there is room for possibility. I want to say that there is a gap. There is place places for a way ways of being that we couldn't have ever predicted. And that's that's because, you know, I think that there's always um, in any human decision, it, it's not decided beforehand. That some, some radical locking in happens in the moment of decision. So, so my question to you is, is what is the point of making prescriptive claims in philosophy or having, you know, conferences where we talk about this issue of the future and what can we do about it if everything's determined in, in advance? Yeah, actually, uh, this is a very good question. Uh, but I, I have a deep feeling that I think analytical philosophers are um, um, afraid of change, afraid of time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, when they talk about um, moral responsible agency or just the self, it's more like uh, everything is uh, just determined by um, by external thing or just internal thing. But uh, as you said, um, it's kind of weird to say we human cannot do anything uh, even now or uh, in the future. Uh, like uh, we can make some change for uh, future. And, uh, but I, I still think we should uh, keep 
uh, keep in mind that uh, we are just a human being and we are limited by uh, human nature in some sense. Um, in one sense, we can uh, trace back to our past to uh, learn something from the past and then we, we, we can still um, make some change for future. And uh, I can also go back to our question, like even if we um, adopt a determinist approach to, um, to more responsibility, I still think more responsibility is possible, whereas uh, against uh, some philosophers just as Gellin Storzer uh, think um, more responsibility is impossible if uh, the thesis of determinism is uh, uh, true. Uh, the approach I take to this uh, um, question is uh, Peter Storson's view react, uh, of reactive attitude theory of more responsibility. Basically, uh, Peter Storson wants to see yeah, our moral uh, um, sentiments such as indignation, resentment, guilt can provide foundation for um, more responsibility. Uh, shame is a very good example. Like we feel ashamed of uh, um, lack of concerns for uh, future generations, uh, such as um, uh, destroying environment, or running out of uh, 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 natural resources. And in this situation, we can um, say we shouldn't like do something we feel ashamed to do. And uh, in, in this sense, a sense of shame can be a internal monitor, uh, which requires uh, uh, a satisfaction of uh, uh, ethical considerations. In this sense, I think a sense of shame or a good sense of shame can navigate our uh, behavior now to create a better uh, society for uh, future generations. What I'm hearing is that there's a possibility that our emotional life is, and particularly the negative emotions such as shame, are not just about authorship. But what you were saying just at the end suggests that there's a way in which emotions are agential, um, in that they influence what follows, such that what follows is different than it would be if that emotion were not palpable to us. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, yes, yes, I totally agree with this uh, view. Like, um, there is a good example, like, like all this uh, so big social movement. Anger plays a very important role in this uh, uh, movement, like we, we feel anger uh, of uh, treating uh, black people badly or uh, we feel resentment and we feel ashamed of uh, how Aboriginal people were treated by the uh, Canadian government before. So in this sense, like our moral sentiments such as resentment, anger and shame can let us know something is wrong and uh, something uh, unjustice happens and we need to change this uh, unhealthy social environment and uh, to create a better uh, future. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, that leads me to another question uh, because we've talked to about the relationship to the past uh, and to the future. What about the present? How does the present influence our relationship with other temporalities or how does our relationship with the present, you know, be expanded in the past or in the future? Yeah, uh, things that I've been thinking about in relation to this question. One of my sort of big concerns is that 
as sort of modern Western beings, our orientation, we think of ourselves as being short term in our thinking, very immediate in our wants and, and, and our desires. And yet at the same time, even within that moment of wanting to improve one's own situation, there's still an orientation towards the future. I want to do something right now in order that the next thing is better. And so I feel that um, our overall orientation is is pointed away from the immediate present tense always towards the next thing always what's around the next curve in the road um but actually i think that it's more interesting to think about ways in which that may be who we're required to be uh, we live in a world that requires us to develop ourselves but at the same time sometimes i think we come in most fully into our own when we completely lose track of all of that and when we become completely lost in whatever it is we're doing and we've lost all sense of what it was we were trying to accomplish or hoping to achieve. Um, and my feeling is that these moments furnish a slightly different phenomenological field. There's a different framing of the possibilities in our reality, different things emerge different different possibilities make themselves they announce themselves to us and we find ourselves doing things that we hadn't planned to do or we hadn't even sort of imagined were possible and so my sense is that these are moments that connect us in a different way to time a different way to to matter we become receptive to matter matter isn't a tool to be turned into something else. It is something that is ripe with possibilities and makes those possibilities known to us. Um, so, so agency doesn't seem to quite work in these moments. Something else is going on. Things are happening in a way that it can't be attributed to a willful intention that we see through. It can't even be attributed to my intention, because strictly speaking, I'm not there at these moments. There's not, there isn't a self-conscious, self-aware I that's at the helm of what's happening. So I, I think that the present tense affords the possibility for a completely different relationship with the way in which we move through time. And it may be a way um, of moving into the future that helps us to overcome a certain instrumentalizing uh, mindset that I think has, has framed our understanding, our self-understanding for, for a long time. When we're thinking of problems like climate change, it would seem to at least many people that what we need to do is plan, you know, predict what the, the outcomes are going to be if it gets to be 2.5 degrees warmer and how we're going to prepare for that. Um, and, you know, who is it going to affect? Um, and so I wonder how can this sort of um, radical responsiveness treat this problem of climate change or, or at least, you know, help us help us on our way in a, in a different sort of understanding of nature and the earth? I think that one of the things that the notion of agency um, does is to exclude from the calculative end of our understanding all the things that happen that we have no control over whatsoever. And for every, for every agentially um, intended and accomplished outcome, the myriad things that happen that we have no control over and that we couldn't prevent even if we tried, 
my own agency is, um, if we look at it just numerically, it's probably statistically quite insignificant <laughs> in terms of the number of things that happen that I cannot direct. So much of what we do now is to counteract the side effects of and the unintentional, non-intended, non-foreseen consequences of earlier agential activities. Um, so I am very drawn at the moment to the thinking of people such as Bookchin, even Heidegger in a certain way, um, who, who, who says, well, no, there's a, there's a, we, we perceive ourselves as being able to determine a future. And it's sort of a nonsensical hubris. And perhaps, as Bookchin says, if things are to change, if, things, if radical change is to be possible, every single aspect of our experience of ourselves and our world will be different. Um, we can't simply carry on being the same people and focusing continually on the outcomes that we want and that we plan for and think that in any way anything's going to change as a result of that. We have to recognize the limitations and the problems of that way of, of thinking and, and, and find other ways in which things happen without this constant imposition of, of a, a prescriptive outcome. Thank you, that's the, yeah, that was, that was a wonderful response. Um, and so just to sort of repeat what you're saying, what you're getting at, this sort of this um, receptivity, the living in this, this present, this present awareness, as opposed to more predictive goal-oriented, a more predictive goal-oriented mode would cause us to be more um, perceptive of what we're crushing, if the, what we would crush if we were kind of to be to beeline towards our objectives. Yeah, it's so it's all about the detour, <laughs> getting rid of the beeline um, and allowing the detour to become the thing that we're doing. Um, so yeah. the, we um, to become the path. Yeah, the yeah well, sort of that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank, I think this um, all this discussion that you just had is interesting in regards to agency um, or the the lack thereof, or you know, interest trying to uh, level the human agency with other kind of agencies as well. And um, I think it's also central to you know what we are all interested in. So I would like to ask you, who would you envision the unborn um, to be, and how would you define or uh, understand their agency? And could we even transpose how you def you define the kind of present tense agency into the future? Would that even be possible? Could that be reframed in future terms? I don't know. <laughs> um, um, I sort of, based on the work that you're doing, I want to, I, I, I sort of feel as if I want to turn that question back to you. I mean, my, I, I think that my work is precisely to do with not trying to visualize who these future, the, who, the unborn, the not yet, um, but rather find a way to allow that to emerge from um, possibilities born of non-domination and non-hierarchical um, relations between us and, and the world. So, but I, I, I'm, I'm dying to hear about cannibalism and consumption because I think this has a lot to, yeah, a lot I mean, to bring to that. I think, uh, yeah, we all kind of touch a bit on capitalism and uh, this consumption um, and uh, 
yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, this real, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, by interacting with the future the way we are doing currently, it's just this, we are just uh, devoiding it of any agency. I'm seeing it uh, like that. And I feel like uh, also, it also is devoiding us of any um, real possibility for imagining different futures than that, and then the one that are prescribed by capitalism. Uh, there's this uh, idea of realist capitalism, whereas it's basically just the extension of present into the future. That's, so that's kind of the only mainstream, I guess, uh, future that we can think of. And I feel like art um, under various forms can make us see how, no, I mean, there's, I mean, then maybe uh, Amy, you won't agree with me, but I feel like there art can show us different futures and different avenues that uh, we just, it's just too hard for us in like day to day to just think of those uh, possibilities. So uh, yeah, I'm curious what you would think of that, Amy. Actually, uh, when uh, Becky talked about uh, her view on agency, I was wondering uh, if the moment has no particular uh, orientation and uh, like agency in some sense is unintentional. So in this sense, is it possible to create a better future for next generations? Like we cannot plan for something for future. So how to create a better uh, society? Yes, how to create a better world, I don't know. And I would be very, very, very afraid of anybody who, who believed that they did know the answer to that question. But I do believe that we can create a better present moment. I do believe that we inhabit a reality that is ripe with possibilities that we're blind to most of the time because we're so intent on the next thing that we have to do, the next thing we have to achieve. And my suspicion is that finding a way to step sideways out of the particular instrumentalizations and hierarchies of subject and object that really frame the way in which the world speaks to us at the moment and the way that we respond to it points towards a different kind of future. But what that future looks like, I, I don't know. Um, how we get there, I don't really know. But I, I, I think that it may be helpful to think less about what kind of future we want and more about how can we re-inhabit the present moment in a different way. The, the, the question then is, is there a way to open, open possibilities? Yeah. You know, I, I really like thinking of the future as this um, alterity that we, you know, we don't want to control, that we don't want to, you know, morph to our own sort of preferences um, or expectations. But I mean, we, it's not like we have no access to the future whatsoever. I mean, we have young people all around us, you know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively young and I have, you know, opinions that, um, you know, I would like for, you know, great big oil um, uh, manufacturers and to ask me about, right? So like, it, it, it's not like we, we have to know what people four generations down the line want. We just, you know, talk to indigenous people, talk to environmentalists that are that are resisting the projects of, of capital and of, um, you know, of instrumentalization of all kinds. Um, listen to the animals and, and the sort of um, the hints that we're getting from the earth, right? 
And yeah, so it may feel like you have something to say to this. Well, yeah, um, I was just thinking of an example um, that might be helpful. Um, and I'm thinking of Bill Mollison, who started the permaculture movement. And when he was living in Tasmania, he, um, for years, uh, was petitioning the government and trying to mobilize change to protect the shoreline in Tasmania, to protect the uh, eco-structures, the, the very delicate ecosystems um, that held the shoreline together. Nothing was happening. Nothing was changing. He felt that all his energies were being spilled into sort of this wasted political mobilization that was accomplishing. He had a very specific goal in sight and he was trying to mobilize towards that goal um, and nothing was happening. And so in the end, in complete frustration, he decided to just stop doing that and grow vegetables. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I just think he's a marvelous example of somebody who stepped out of one kind of mindset and into another, he decided to inhabit the present moment in the way that he felt was necessary for that present moment to be non-violent and non-destructive and open. And so the permaculture movement actually has accomplished all sorts of things that governments around the world have completely <laughs> failed to accomplish. Um, and I think that that may be a sort of live example of, of, of a, a shift in mindset that is help could be helpful yeah and i can imagine if that shift in mindset occurred um certainly you know with some of the richest most powerful people in the world and people that are um invested in projects of building pipelines across cross country if they tried to live a little bit more in the moment and tried to listen to everything that was happening around them instead of beelining forth to their profit to their expectations then we would be, I think, relieved of, of some of the destruction and, and we could find newer, creative, less destructive ways of, of moving forward, of, of, of wandering forward. Yeah, but I, I think that we have to, I don't think we can put the problem over there and just sort of park it on the laps of the billionaires and carry on. I, <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, Amazon is rich because of the billions of cheap t-shirts that are being bought and the you know so and right there is the problem um that it's it's the orientation of each one of us yeah yeah I think you're right yeah I would I would love for millionaires to become artists or at least uh, to um spend a year or two in in art school just to Some are but that's another <laughs> problem <laughs> I mean I feel like it's almost all the time we've got and I don't want to you know, take too much time, but I wanted to thank, thank all our panelists for, you know, having this discussion um, and for space for having us. And uh, we are excited to see the other conferences that are in the coming few days. So thanks to everyone. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.for at concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU Fourth Space. We'd love to hear from you. The Fourth Space Podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced with Anna Voklebeck. Editing by Chanel Lees Marshall and Maximus Delmar. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. And our theme music, courtesy of Supercarmond. Thanks for listening.